Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baya here again with Clint Flowers. Clint, what's going on, man? I'll tell you what, right now, this is the coolest May I can ever remember in the South. It is beautiful and just so pleasant to be outside right now. Yeah, it's been great. And I keep, uh, woke up a few days early last week, jumping out of bed, worried that I, I, I missed the sunrise and that the turkeys were already gobbling <laughs> i know yeah, that good. feeling i know that feeling you've been uh, you've been showing some land this week we've been wide open um actually as soon as we wrap up today headed up to the black belt to show another 2400 acres and we showed land six and a half days of the week last week it's been something to behold given all that's going on yeah same thing down here huh? like we talked about a few weeks ago this is not just because uh we may be about to experience some economic recession uh, does not apply necessarily to land. So it's been good. I definitely have enjoyed uh, listening to my phone ring and see my in- email inbox fill up. Folks are still buying land, still thinking about land. So let's, uh, let's get into this week's show. And this week's show is brought to you by Bay County Armory. Building an AR-10 or AR-15 can be a daunting task. Choosing every individual component of the firearm is something that prevents most from ever getting started and leaves you buying whatever rifle you can find on the shelf. At Bay County Armory, they will guide you on choosing which components you want based on the type of task you're trying to tackle. So don't let the feeling of overwhelm stop you from having the exact AR-10 or AR-15 you want. Give Bay County Armory a call at 850-832-2238 or check them out online at baycountyarmory.com. Talking about those turkeys, there's just a lot of rumbling, a lot of rumbling around the community about people who really feel like turkey populations are in decline. I want to talk to an expert on that this week. We're talking with Chuck Sykes. Chuck is the Director of the Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries Division of the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources and formerly the creator, uh, founder of the Management Advantage. So he's done quite a bit uh, when it comes to managing turkeys. And and I think he's got his finger on the pulse of what's going on with turkey populations in Alabama and is also talking to a lot of other state directors to find out how wild turkey populations are doing across the country. So, Chuck, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yes, sir. Well, glad to have you. You know, we're going to talk a lot about turkeys today and and what's going on with my favorite bird. But uh, before we get there, you know, I want to hear some more about what's going on in Alabama. you got some new deer hunting zones coming up. Tell me about what uh, where they are and tell me why we're doing that. Hadn't been that long ago when Alabama was, you know, managed from one end of the state to the other one identical and We've kind of beat this horse to death, but I'll hit it briefly. We've got so many different genetic varieties of deer in the state based on our historic stocking that we're basically unlike any other state in the nation when it comes to deer rut and deer behavior. When I manage deer in Illinois, the first week to 10 days of November, every deer in the state goes into rut. And that's the way it is in most states. But in Alabama, Depending on where you are in the state, you can hunt the rut November, December, January, and February, depending on what variety of deer that you're hunting. So with that being said, our staff has been collecting reproductive data, herd health data, by going out in the summers, this time of year now, harvesting antlerless deer, doing full necropsies on them, checking for all kind of stuff, but one thing is We can take the fetuses, measure them, and know exactly when that doe was bred. 
So this is not a guess. This is not I saw a, a buck chasing a doe, therefore the rut's in. This we we know when that doe was bred, and my staff's been doing that since about '95. So this is many years worth of data, and we finally got things narrowed down enough that you know five or six years ago we started Zone A and B, where the southern portion of the state was moved to February the 10th because that's when the majority of the deer rutting is late season. And on the flip side of that, we have pockets of deer that rut early. I managed a piece of property in Lee County, Alabama, over on the, the Georgia-Alabama line for years as a commercial hunting operation, and my deer rutted the first 10 days of, of December. And then my old Alabama deer kicked in in January. So I've been knowing this as a biologist for a while, but, you know, me stepping up in front of the public and saying, I know this because I'm a biologist, well, that didn't get it. So we've got data now, this conception data, that says when the deer are rutting. So we tried the extended season. It worked well. So now keeping in, in, in step with that, we've got a couple areas of the state that rut early. Those hunters wanted to hunt the rut just like hunters in South Alabama wanted to hunt a late rut. So we moved the season forward a little bit for them. We didn't give them more time. Go ahead and get that out. Nobody's getting favoritism. Nobody's getting more weeks. They're just swapping front end for back end. What does that look like? Because, I mean, I personally, I, I like, I mean, I just like the scientific approach. And if if that means you get to enjoy more of that, that rut craze, you know, <laughs> hunting activity, that's that's awesome. I mean, for from, from a pure enjoyment standpoint. But what will that look like for the guys in different zones? How many zones are, we, are you dividing the state up into now? We've got five zones now. For the past couple of years, we've had A, B, and C. Um, C is that zone up in the north-central part of the state where the habitat is not quite as conducive for big populations, so the antlerless harvest has been reduced in that area. So that's really the only significant change from, from B to A to B to C. But zone D is in parts of Coleman, Franklin, Lawrence, and Winston counties, basically around Bankhead National Forest and Black Warrior WMA, where we have some of those historic early stockings, and those deer rut early. We've got years of data to prove it. So their season, their gun season will come in a couple of weeks early, and it will go out a couple of weeks later. And then we've got zone E, which is in parts of Calhoun, Cleburne counties, around Chocolaca WMA, and then parts of Barber and Russell counties down there, like I was talking about that little isolated pocket over in Lee County that I managed. All of this information, people need to go to outdooralabama.com. They can see the maps. They can see the dates rather than us going through it at nauseum here. But what it basically does is it gives gun season a couple of weeks prior to the traditional opener. But it also closes gun season because in addition to these deer rutting early, one thing that we were seeing was there were a lot of hunters passing up two and three year old bucks that were actually casting their antlers in late January. And they were trying to fill their antlerless quota, shoot a doe for the freezer late season. And they ended up walking up on a, a three-year-old buck that they may have passed up a dozen times hoping he was going to get better. They shot him at dark one afternoon and just thought it was a big doe. 
So this hopefully will avoid some of that collateral damage by moving the, the season forward just a little bit. Well, you know, one of the other things that you guys have been doing a lot more of recently is the SOA program. Are there any new SOAs this year? No new ones right now. Um, we're adding some acreage to uh, Portland Landing and to Cedar Creek over in Dallas County. So by this hunting season, hopefully we'll have all of those closed and we'll be adding a couple of thousand acres to each one of them. That program, Joe, has just, it's gone far better than we could have ever anticipated. Uh, it's incredible the the response that we're getting from people. The only people that are upset about it are the people that didn't get drawn. The people that hunt it couldn't well, yeah, be happier. I'm upset happier. about that myself. Yeah, I mean. Well, know. me too. I hadn't been drawn <laughs> either, so I, I feel your pain. Right. But uh, the registrations, deer registrations will begin in mid-August. I think it's the 19th, and it'll go through like the 12th or 13th of September. And then small game and turkey hunts, you can register for them December the 2nd through the 16th. And then some of our youth programs, like at Fred T. Stenson SOA, I think you can register for them like September 16th through the 30th. But again, just like with the deer regulations, people need to go to OutdoorAlabama.com. All of the information is there. If you go to OutdoorAlabama.com, search SOAs, it will tell you everything that you need to know, where they are, you can download maps, you can register. One thing that we're doing is pretty exciting that I'm giving you the scoop on because we haven't really announced this yet, is we're adding a feature on our Outdoor Alabama app this year where you can go online and a lot of our WMAs this year have got daily permits that you go to a little iron ranger a little kiosk and fill out your permit well, we've got it now where you can do it completely on the app so that will save a lot of our hunters time with going in getting a permit filling it out then going to their favorite hunting spot so we're trying to make this whole process as easy and time saving as much as we can but we still need that data, just like we've got great data on our rut zones so we can offer people the optimum opportunity to hunt the rut. We need that kind of information coming in from our SOAs and our WMAs where we can make sure that we're fine-tuning things to give people the best opportunity to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, the best experience. I talked with a friend of mine down here in Baldwin County who got drawn for the Portland Landing deer hunt, and he and his dad went up there, and they both took nice bucks and just said they saw deer every hunt. And he said, you know, they had to hunt them. It wasn't like they were walking out in the wild open. They still had to do some scouting and, and get out and, and burn up some boot leather. But they did, and they were both had a great time, were very successful. One of the questions I have for you, Chuck, for folks that haven't drawn an SOA permit or or new to the SOA program altogether, if they do draw, are there early dates that they can go to these properties and scout them out to get an idea Absolutely. of where they want to be? Absolutely. But we do have scouting days throughout the summer where people can go and get a sneak peek at their hunting location. And one of the best tools that hunters have with these SOAs 
talk to the biologist that runs it. These people are there to help. I had a just an incredible email from a turkey hunter this week that drew for Portland Landing the last weekend of the season. And he killed a turkey. He was happy. But the whole email was about the staff, not just the biologist, but also his technicians and biologist aides that help him on the place. They're there. They work it. They'll talk to you and tell you what they know about the property, what they know about the unit that you've grown, and they want to help. That's their job. So going to the SOA and going to the the early scouting days is extremely valuable, but staying in contact with that biologist is priceless. Yeah, and he's there every day, so he's able to tell you week to week what may have changed uh, on the property. And, you know, thinking about the, those, those SOA and, and the registrations coming up for them, you know, if folks don't draw, is there a preference point system in place or is it just a, uh, uh, everybody's on the same, same odds every year? No, it's a preference point system, just like the alligator. Again, we try to keep this as fair and equitable for everybody. Nothing is 100%. Nothing is guaranteed, but we try to make it as fair as we can where everybody gets a shot at it. Well, you brought up alligators. I've done that once. Let's see. We we spent, I think we finally killed the alligator at about three o'clock in the morning and down in the Mobile Delta. And then we got caught in a lightning storm on our way back to the landing with a 12 foot gator that was still moving around a little bit. I have my fill alligator hunting, but for anybody that uh, wants to do it, well, when's the registration coming up for that? June 4th, 8 a.m. So bright and early on June 4th, and you've got till July the 10th. And you don't have to register first to get first in line to get the best choices. Everybody's drawn at random by computer drawing on July the 10th. So as long as you get registered, get in by July the 10th, you've got a good opportunity to get it. And Joe, I'm kind of like you. I've I've had my fill, but <laughs> I've got a group that is probably six or eight. And we go every year. Somebody typically gets grown. I don't care if I ever put my hands on another one. <laughs> but it's kind of got to be a social event on a vacation yeah. for us. Well, I'll tell you another so thing. We'll, uh, I know some, quite a few guys out west, and the, they look at alligators the way we look at elk. And yep. that, you know, that's my other question for you. If you get if you get drawn, if I get drawn, and I want to bring a friend, and they want to go, am, am I able to let them dispatch the alligator? I mean, am I able to let them do use my tag, or do I have to? As, do they have to? Draw? As long as you are sitting in the boat with them, it doesn't matter who does it. As long as the tag holder is in the boat, you can be sleeping in the boat. But as long as you've got the tag and you're the tag holder, you're in the boat with the dispatch equipment, that's fine. What about after the kill? So when it comes to the, the, uh, the sites tags and being able to transfer, like, so if, if I had a buddy that came down and he wanted to do it, and he, he took the alligator and I wanted, and he wanted to put it on his wall, you know, and take the meat back with him, am I able to transfer it to him? The CITES tag stays with the animal. It doesn't really designate that you were the hunter. That tag goes with the animal wherever it goes. That's awesome. You know, you take something like 
uh, you, if you're able to draw, uh, and then if you've got some friends, there's a cool website out there now called Trips for Trade. We did a little thing uh, on that where you can actually trade different hunts for hunts and fishing trips for hunts and football tickets for fishing trips and all this kind of stuff. If you can draw a gator tag and, and put together and you've got the outfit to be able to do it, you can then use that to uh, bring some folks down and give them a new experience and maybe get yourself a new experience in another state. I think it's really, uh, really cool. All the, the options you've got it. If you can draw that tag. So definitely got a, that's right. As long as you are the tag holder, and you're in the boat. The only capture equipment is in the boat with you. Then you're legal. As long as everybody's got to have a license, you know, if somebody comes in from out of state, they're going to have to have a non-resident license to participate in the hunt. Look, we're trying to make this again, as easy and fun for folks as we can. But one thing that we saw last year, I noticed on your notes, you said any change in the regs. This is not really a change in the reg, but it's something that we're going to start enforcing pretty heavy this year. It, it looks like to us that there are some people out there that are using this just as an opportunity to go fishing for an alligator. And they'll catch a eight foot, bring it to the boat, take a bunch of pictures, cut it loose and drop it back in the water. Well, a lot of times those alligators don't make it. So it's always been this way, but there, as with most things, there are a few people that have ruined it for everybody. Once you hook an alligator, that's yours. I mean, going through the process, everybody that draws a tag has to take an online training course. Going through that process, you learn how to estimate the size of an alligator. When y'all caught your 12-footer, you knew it wasn't a four-footer when you threw a line to it. Yeah, and an eight-footer would have been a big gator. (laughs) An an eight-footer would have been plenty. (laughs) So when you hook it up, if you get it to the boat, you need to dispatch it. That's the way the program works. The only exception to that is on Lake Eufaula because there's an eight-foot minimum over there because we're trying to protect the females to keep the population stable. But there were quite a few people that on Facebook showed repeatedly catching five, six, seven, eight, nine-foot gators, wrestling them for 30 or 45 minutes, pulling them up in the boat, taking pictures, hooting, hollering around, and then turning it loose. They had no, you know, no way were they going to kill that alligator. Well, there's a good chance that alligator died from stress. That's not what we're wanting to do. So people need to read the regulations. They need to understand it. Again, everything's on the Outdoor Alabama website. If you have a question, call us. Don't rely on what your buddy says or what you saw on Facebook or what somebody's interpretation is of it. Call the district office in your area. They can tell you exactly what is required. Hey, Chuck, can you elaborate a little bit on on, uh, the amount or number of tags going out to each zone and and really how you guys come up with that? Yeah. Every year, our biologists do surveys. They do the same routes year after year after year, trying to inventory what's there. We want everybody to have fun. We want to be able to catch a big gator. We want to keep the population at a level where we don't have a lot of nuisance complaints every year. But we don't want to hit it so hard. You know, it hadn't been that long ago when alligators were threatened and endangered. So we monitor it pretty, pretty closely. But this year, the southwest zone has got 100 tags. The coastal zone is 50. And we separated that coastal zone out 
because there we were getting so many complaints on nuisance gators in that coastal zone. And it seemed like everybody that went down to the Delta wanted to go way up in the Delta to catch one. So we split it off to, to force 50 of those tags to be filled in that coastal zone to cut down on our nuisance complaints. You know, it, it's not good when one of my staff has to go in and remove a 10-foot alligator when that alligator could be could be enjoyed by a bunch of people during the season. So we're, we're, we're trying to do that. The southeast zone is 40 tags. West central zone up around Selma and Camden is 50. And then Lake Eufaula, we have 20 tags there. Well, it's definitely something you got to get going on and, and definitely get your uh... – Get your entry in and, and get your chance. And uh, like I say, it, your, your odds improve if you don't draw this year. Uh, every year you put in, you got a, a better a better chance of getting it the next. And if you've never done it, it's pretty exhilarating. Uh, it's, it'll wear you out, but it's uh, it's fun. Uh, well, I, Joe, I'm, I'm a prime example of, of how the point system works. I applied just like the SOAs and the alligator. I go online and I apply just like everybody else just to make sure the system works. Mm -hmm. I go through the process because we always hear, well, it's rigged. Well, Chuck and all of his friends are the ones that get it every time. <laughs> I go online and I check the system just to see. It took me six years and I drew a tag last year. I did. I was one of the tag holders last year just because I had checked the system every year, just like everybody else did. I didn't get drawn year one, year two, or year three. And somebody else that was in the boat with us, I let them dispatch the alligator. They got a whole lot more thrill out of it than I did. I was there. Everybody had licenses. Everybody was legal. Everybody had a good time. Well, Chuck, now that uh, turkey season is over with, a lot of guys are starting their preparations for summer planning and you know before you were with the ADC and R you were head of the management advantage and that's that's where I first learned about you and and managing properties all over the southeast and midwest and consulting with landowners and working with them on improving their habitat uh, improving their wildlife and you know one of the things folks need to be thinking about this time of year is, is planting for dove season so Tell me a little bit about what you like to do. I, I'd really like to know, we could talk about dove seeds, you know, what you like to plant all day long. But one of the things I've noticed is the more and more dove hunts I've got to go on, a lot of it has to do with the way the field is set up and, and the way that things are planted and, and, and that kind of thing. So talk to me about what you like to do with a dove field this time of year. Well, and, and I, I want to go back to, to my earlier days. When I talk to people about, regulations, seasons and bag limits, and all that kind of stuff, I want them to understand a couple of things. Before I was a director, I was a wildlife biologist. And before I was a wildlife biologist, I was a hunter. So I'm looking at it through three different sets of glasses. I was a hunter a long time before I was a wildlife biologist. And I was a wildlife biologist a long time before I was the director. So I have to look at what's best for the hunters and what's best for the wildlife and then reach that happy medium on things that I know that, that we can get done. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, a lot of people in my position are not hunters. 
They may be biologists. They may be lawyers. They may be politicians. I'm a hunter. I'm a redneck from southwest Alabama who's been hunting since I was big enough to walk. I went to Auburn, got a degree in wildlife management. As you said, I've managed recreational properties all over the country. That's my passion. That's what I dedicated my career to. This director thing just came about a little bit later on. So as you said, I do have the background. Unfortunately, I have to make decisions a lot of the time that makes people unhappy, but they need to know that I take the best information that I can, talk with my staff, talk with as many people as I can, and then we make decisions that, first of all, benefits the resource. If you try to manage to make hunters happy, that's a losing proposition because everybody's not ever going to be happy. If you manage to make the resource as healthy as you can, then that'll make the most people happy. Wait a minute, Chuck. Are you telling me that everybody in a deer camp is not happy? Yeah, I know that's a hard concept to grasp, but in my short time as director, I've, I've learned that. It's, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, you so see it now time, that I'm time off my soapbox. No, but you're yeah, right, though. Yeah. I mean, if, it, it doesn't matter what you do in your current position. You're going to make somebody – if somebody's not going to be happy. And the same thing goes when – If I sit in my office and close the door and cut the computer off and don't do anything, I'm going to make 50% of the people mad because they wish I was doing something. Right. Then once I start doing it, then those 50 are going to be mad because I did it. So we just do the best we can with the scientific information that we have. So I'm off my soapbox now. Let me get back to Dovefield plant. We can create some state regs on deer shaming. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is the time of year to start planting your, your plots. And one thing that I have found over the years, it's pretty much impossible to create a field and make doves go to it. You really, and Clint can talk about this as well as I can, real estate is location, location, location. And that doesn't matter if it's a commercial building, if it's the home you live in, if it's a food plot for deer, a chufa patch for turkeys, or it's a dove field. If it's not in the right location, you can do everything under the sun and it's going to be substandard. So first and foremost, you want to find a good location, a spot where birds want to be. Does that make sense? Let me ask you about that. So if a guy is thinking about uh, planting a plant a dove field where he hasn't before, is that just a visual, I've seen doves there before kind of question? Or, or is there some topography or type of land that you really like to look for like a water source or gravel or that's it here's the thing they need water and they need water that they can get to so a big deep pond with straight down banks it's really not going to do them a lot of good a pond with sloping banks with maybe some sand that they can walk on and they can see that something's not laying there in the bushes that's going to get them that's a good that's one good piece to have Loafing areas, power lines, big trees around the field, places that they can just sit there during the heat of the day, get in the shade and preen. That's a big, big factor. Then I like to have some roosting close by. That'd be, you know, a cedar thicket, a small pine thicket, something dense close by that they can roost and nest in. Because a lot of the doves that we hunt around here are not migratory birds. They are birds that we raise, and they'll raise two or three clutches 
a year if conditions are right. And then finally is the food factor. And when you start talking about planting for doves, just like anything else, the longer you can feed them, the more successful you're going to be. So let's just say you've got a 20-acre field, and I've tried it all. Some of the best hunts I've ever had was on 20 acres of brown top millets. I'm planted in June, comes off the 1st of September. It's fantastic. If I want to hunt later into the season, then I'm going to need to put something in there that's a little more hardy, that the seed can withstand a little more rain, a little more pressure like sunflowers or corn or grain sorghum. So if I want a good early hunt, I may leave some winter wheat that I can manipulate during the summer and feed them where they've got food there during the summer on that wheat. And then I've got brown top coming in early that first weekend. And then I've got the sunflowers and the corn that can come on a little bit later. So I'm trying to give them as much as I can in one spot where they don't have to go anywhere if that makes sense. And when you say manipulate the winter wheat, how do you do that? Because that, that's something most of us have standing. You can mow it. You, simply, can, simply, you can do whatever mowing. you want to until 10 days before you hunt it. So a lot of places that I've managed, I didn't have that luxury. I kept a disc strip, a few disc strips in my field, and I fed them throughout the summer. That's completely legal as long as you're not hunting over it. You can feed them all you want to. Chuck, let's talk about that, that reg a little bit. And, and so when you say, you know, 10 days prior to the season, does that mean you just can't manipulate within 10 days? Because like, let's say I manipulated on, you know, 12 days before the season and I fed, and I fed doves all 12 days before the season. If any of that feed is still there 10 days before the season, is that still the same thing? Yeah, it's, if you feed them, if you do, if you pour out feed, and you do it two weeks before the season comes in. If that feed is still there when the season comes in, you are illegal. Every bit of that has got to be gone 10 days prior to you shooting. Right. So you can't go out there and just and mow, a, mow something 11 days prior that's not a normal agricultural practice. And then say, if well, it I is a normal, yeah, you hit it just right. If it's a normal agricultural practice, it's legal. And again, I'm, I'm, keep, I'm, I'm throwing this out again. Outdooralabama.com, go to Doves, look at the regulations, look at the planting dates, look at what is considered a natural agricultural process. That's what to do. Going yeah. out and putting cracked corn on a plowed field is not a natural agricultural process. That won't come up. Go, yeah, going out and planting a field with roasted wheat that will not germinate, that is not a natural agricultural process. So, Chuck, I mean, what I'm hear you, hearing you say is that, you know, not only are you doing something for the, for the critters 365 days a year, but you're improving the habitat. I mean, is that why some birds stick around uh, and, and spend the summer here as opposed to going back up north and migrating? Well, and, and I'm, this is not scientific. This is just Chuck's common sense approach to looking at it. And take your, your Canada geese, for example. We used to not have a resident population of geese. They came down in the winter when they could find food. Then in the summer, they went back home. Well, a few of them figured out they could stop over on a pond at a golf course 
There was good habitat to nest. There was food 365 days a year, and it never got so cold that they did not have something to eat. Look, most animals are inherently lazy, just like we are. They're only going to do what they're forced to do. So a few of them said, why do I need to fly back thousands of miles when I've got everything I need here? Ducks are a prime example of that. We don't have a bunch of ducks here other than wood ducks because we don't have proper duck nesting habitat. Some places have some, and they actually have mallards or whatever that never leave. They stay here because there's enough habitat for them. But most ducks fly back to the prairie potholes because that is where the majority of the habitat is for them to nest and bring off a successful brood. Then when food shortages start during the cold weather, they only fly as far as they need to. They don't just pick up and come to South Alabama just because they like it. So if the cold weather doesn't run them down, we don't have good duck hunting down here. They go where their resources are. So molding that back into doves, if you provide them with the necessary resources 365 days a year, you're going to create a bunch of resident birds that never leave because they don't have to. All right, Chuck, that's some great information on uh, creating some better dove hunting conditions and what you can do right now. We're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. Y'all stick around when we get back. We're going to be talking about turkey populations, what you can be doing on your property, and are they in decline? This week's Hunt Land podcast is brought to you by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. Black Belt Bounty is a literary work of art, and it celebrates the rich traditions of hunting and fishing that are so deeply embedded in the lives of those who are fortunate to enjoy the outdoors in the Black Belt. It features award-winning writers, photography, and recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. Pick up your copy at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash Bounty. And welcome back. We're talking with Chuck Sykes. Chuck is the director of the Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries Division of the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. And yeah, let's let's let that bring us into the 2020 turkey season in Alabama. I I, I feel a little bit sorry for the turkeys this year because golly, there were so many more people hunting. I imagine the harvest numbers had to be way up. I know I got to go a lot more mornings than what I normally would. How, how, what was the, how'd the season end up? I guess first question ought to be. Are folks participating in, in game check? Uh, were they participating more this year? Well, that is a really good question. Like you, I got to hunt a lot more this year than I typically do. Um, I'm going to vote for teleworking and social distancing every spring. Right. It, it worked really well for me. I would, where in the past five or six years, the legislature has been in session. I've had to be in a coat and tie at the office most days of the week, so I had turned into a weekend warrior. And just like this year, I mean, look at the severe storms that we had that seemed to always roll through on a Saturday and Sunday. So if I would have still been a weekend warrior, my season would have been substandard. But because I could go hunt on Wednesday or Thursday before that front came in, I was a lot more successful. So personally, I got all my work done, but I got a lot of it done from my iPad or my iPhone sitting next to a tree. Yeah. So yeah, turkeys took it on the on the chin from from me and the folks that I hunt with this year. Just 
a few numbers, there was a 47% increase in the number of unique hunter IDs at game check birds this year. Wow. All right. So, but now you tell me this, did more traditional turkey hunters that got mad at me at the advisory board for saying that we were going to close the season if people didn't game check, was that them doing it? Now, Chuck, now hold, on hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. You can't be messing with people's emotions like that. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> you did, it drew some you, attention. I bet. <laughs> I heard about it. I don't pay attention to any of that as far as the meetings go. And I had three or four people call me in a day. It was, it was impressive. Yep. Chuck. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and again, but I want people, this goes back to my soapbox a while ago. I was a turkey hunter a long time before I was a biologist or before I was a director. So when I'm looking at turkey regulations, I'm looking as a selfish hunter, then as a biologist, then as a director. So I'm not just some suit sitting behind a desk saying, well, I'm going to do this, just screw with the hunters out there. Because it impacts me as much or more than it impacts everybody else. I, I'm there with you. So I, I did that at the board meeting to get people's attention, and boy, did it. So uh, we did. We had, I think, 16,000 turkeys recorded this year, where last year we had less than 11,000. So that's good. I hope people took that to heart, that we need these numbers just going back to the right now. Going back to giving hunters prime time to hunt in those counties this year with an earlier season. We had good data that we could base our recommendations on. Yeah. So I think there were definitely more turkeys harvested this year. I do think more people responded and, and did the right thing and reported their turkeys. So it's going to take some people a lot smarter than me to crunch those numbers and factor in what is more participation and what is just better compliance. Well, I can tell you this, and this is just my own personal opinion uh, of all of it, but coming from my, you know, my background as a kid working on charter boats in the Gulf. And I mean, look, what happened with snapper fishery was a travesty for a lot of businesses down there, uh, a lot of recreational anglers, and you know cutting things down to having a three-day season and you know just it's i mean point blank it it just sucked and it and it wasn't right i mean there was there's plenty there was plenty of fish out there but i don't think there's one person uh who fishes in the gulf of mexico for red snapper who fished in the was fishing in the 90s and is fishing now it would tell you that snapper fishing is not better out there than it is than it was and yep the the reality of that is is that now it's a state managed fishery uh as opposed to being federally managed and if you talk to me if you know me in personal circles you know i'm as skeptical of government as anybody uh and and don't want any more involvement than than the next guy uh i i want us to self regulate and and do those things but man i mean having the data like you're talking about from snapper check being able to make data-driven management decisions has made all the difference for recreational anglers fishing for red snapper. It's improved snapper populations. We got more days. Now, granted, we had more days in the, you know, back then than we do now, but back then you were catching less fish with more days than you are now. And so it's all around, it's a better 
fishery. It's more fun. It's better for recreation. And it, turkeys can be the same way, I believe, that if we've got, if we can get good data and put it out there and, and make sure we're making decisions based off of that. I don't, I just don't, I don't know what the hesitation is. I guess it's, it's a, I guess it's just a skepticism of, of government. I, I don't know, but I think you you guys are are doing a really good job with with the data and and making decisions based on that and and I just want to tell you that you know publicly because it's how can you make decisions if you don't have good data I don't know I mean well, how was you, it, how was it being done before uh, a wag yeah <laughs> so. you you know that and and that's it we we take the information that we have and try to make the best regulations that we can the better information we we have the more fine tuning we can do just i mean the deer zones are a prime example 10 years ago there was one zone from one end of the state to the other now we have five because each area is managed a little bit different based on the genetics in that area we had the data to prove it snapper check you had the data to prove that the federal government was not managing it the way it needed to be the fishermen were taking it on the chin. It wasn't good for the fishery. It wasn't good for the fishermen. Now that we have the data, our Marine Resources Division is doing a fantastic job monitoring it and making sure that it doesn't go back to the way it was. I'm just asking for the same thing with deer and turkeys. These are two really important socially, culturally, economic critters for our state. I want to manage it the best I can. I believe you, Chuck, and, I, and, it, and one thing I know for a fact is that you don't want to be able to kill less turkeys. If you're, <laughs> if you're as bad about them as I am, it's not about wanting to kill less. It's about wanting to be able to get more. And uh, like you said, you're a hunter a long time before you were doing what you're doing now. And I mean, I know you don't want to uh, lose a bird or two every year. No, but, but let me ask you a question. Seriously, as, as a diehard fisherman, that I know you are. Had you rather catch five fish a day for 20 years or catch 10 fish a day for five years? Me personally, I'd rather catch five for 20 because I want to keep doing it and keep going back and keep being able to share it, that it, experience with somebody else. Yes. And for most non-greedy, selfish hunters and fishermen, which are the majority, they look at it the same way. We're not managing for today. We're not managing for tomorrow. We're managing for 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So we've got to do what's best for that resource for the long term, not just instant gratification today. And that's where we end up rubbing some people the wrong way because they're only worried about themselves. Not the majority, but there are a vocal minority that just are worried about themselves. I'll support you as long as you don't do something that impacts what I want to do. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Chuck. You're talking about doing things for the future. What are you guys doing on, on public lands and state lands uh, to benefit turkey habitat? What, what, what initiatives are out there? I know when I talked to you last about Uchi Creek, uh, you were telling me y'all were going to be starting some prescribed fire and, and doing some different things to improve habitat. Are, have those things taken place? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that we try to do is proper timber management and proper burning regimes. Those are the two most important things in my book. Food plots, eh, food plots really, in most cases, just give people something to do or a place to sit. Overall, habitat management is much more important. So we put a lot of emphasis on disking, burning, proper timber management to create daylight, sunlight, field edges, and things like that. There's always something going on, and turkeys and quail and deer, we have to manage for everything. But 99% of the critters that we manage for, they all respond to the same things, which is proper timber management, proper understory management, and, and a few openings. Let's get back to the data a little bit. Um, what do you feel, how do you feel about turkey populations as a whole in Alabama right now? Are, are we in a decline? Um, I see that, you know, people say that. Or if we're in a decline, what areas are declining? And I mean, are there areas, any areas that are booming? Sure there are. And again, it goes back to location. I know some properties. I hunt some properties. Timber's managed well. Predators are controlled. Food plots are done. Roads are there. Openings are there and maintained. Got plenty of turkeys. I also know of a bunch of places that have no turkeys. So it's not like we can say the bottom left-hand third of the state has no turkeys and the top middle has bunches. Mm -hmm. You can have properties a mile apart with different management regimes that one has turkeys running out their ears and one you couldn't buy a gobble if your life depended on it. So it all goes back to proper management. I mean, a lot of the places that I hunted this year, we self-imposed limits on ourselves. We went to the property, we heard a couple of turkeys gobble, we killed one, we didn't go back and kill another. one. If we heard six or eight turkeys gobble, we killed two or three, we walked away. Now, granted, I'm lucky. I, I don't have that many places to hunt personally, but I go hunt with people because I don't care if I kill one or not. I have calls and will travel. But, you know, we self-imposed limits to make sure that we could do the same thing next year. I'd rather kill three every year than kill five this year and then none for the next three years. How does predator management play into that, in your opinion? How critical is that versus habitat it's all just pieces of a puzzle you've got great habitat predators are not that big of a impact if you've got marginal habitat predators are a bigger impact i mean you think about it if hen turkeys only have 50 acres of quality nesting habitat and every hen on your property is nesting in that 50 acres that concentrates your predators. Mm -hmm. If you've got 500 acres of quality nesting habitat, it spreads your hens out. So again, it's just, it's a combination. Predator control, when I was consulting, predator control was a vital piece on specific properties. Some properties, it didn't matter. But if I had the time, if I had the money, and I wanted to maximize production on my property, I am going to hit my nest predators, raccoons and possums really hard before 
my hens go on nest in March and April. So I know I'm not going to kill them all, and there's going to be more move in, but I'm going to try to create a void during those months when those hens are on the nest just to give them a little greater chance of getting those poles off and getting them where they can fly up in a tree. Chuck, you're talking about hitting those predators hard right before nesting season, and I see a lot of out there dissension about nesting season burning. And yep. it was described to me, and, and you know, I'm not a biologist, so I, I just, I, it all makes sense to me if somebody is convincing enough, but it was described to me that uh, prescribed fire creates so much habitat that the loss in nests is worth it. Is that right? All right. Yes. All right. And, and look at it this way. People, a lot of times, look at animals as individuals. I burnt that spot during June, and I ran X hen off and ruined her nest. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice an individual for the good of the population because we have to manage on population levels and landscape levels, not individual levels. We have a real hard time with that on people wanting to, quote, save baby animals. We, we see a, a orphan raccoon on the side of the road. We want to save it because it's an individual. Where in reality, if you take that raccoon, drive it across the country, you may spread a disease to a bunch of different raccoons and the overall population may be hurt for saving one. So all of that getting back to burning. If you have got habitats that are unreclaimable with a cool winter burn, the hardwoods are too big, too thick, too dense, a cool season burn just will not get it back to a proper condition. Well, then you're just going to grit your teeth and roll one through there during this time of year, knowing that you may burn up a turkey nest, but the cumulative effect of that better habitat will more than replace the loss of that one turkey nest. Makes sense to me. And you're talking about nest predators and doing things to help turkeys. Here we are almost in June. What can folks be doing with, with their summer trapping? Let's, let's wrap it up that way. Is there anything somebody could be doing going into the summer uh, that's going to benefit their turkeys? Uh, or are we more thinking about deer or other, other prey species this time of year? This time of year is, uh, I'd still be hitting the raccoons and possums. It's, it's always a good time to put out your little dog-proof traps. And when you're at the camp over the weekend, set them and, Every one you take out just one less that you've got to feed with something, either a turkey nest or a protein feeder or whatever. And then, depending on what part of the state you're in, when your does are getting ready to start dropping fawns, then that's when I want to start taking out my coyotes. I want to hit them hard over in West Alabama where I am. You know, our deer don't start dropping till late August and September. So early August, if I want to make a significant impact and I've only got X number of days that I can take off to trap, that's when I'm going to be doing it. I'm not going to trap them in, in May and hope that none come back in between May and September. 
if I've got limited resources and limited time and I want the most bang for my buck, that's when I'm going to hit them is, is right before my hens go on the nest and right before my doe start dropping little ones. Chuck, it sounds like with turkeys, it boils down to you either need to be putting money into the organizations like the NWTF or out there trying to create and save turkey habitat, uh, or you need to be putting money into your own property if you own property to improve turkey habitat. But I, I want to ask you, you know, across the state, you get to see a lot of different properties. You get to see a lot of different areas of the state that Clint and I don't get to see. And um, how do you feel about the turkey population as a whole in Alabama? Do you think it's on the way up, on the way down? All right. I know I'm going to make some people mad with this, but personally, I think we're down. I think there are some places that, that are just fine. But if you're asking me to look at the state as a whole versus where we were 15 years ago, I'm going to say that we are down because of a lot of the things that we've already talked about. Habitat changes, predator numbers changing, increase in, in hunting pressure. And that's sort of what I want to focus on just to sum this up. I hunted this year with a 410 that had a pattern at 40 yards as good as 90% of the shotguns, 12 gauges that I grew up hunting with. So we have become a lot more effective killers. 20 years ago, I could get in any hunting club I wanted to, pay my yearly dues if I told them that I was not going to deer hunt. All I wanted to do was turkey hunt. And there may be one other guy in that club that turkey hunted everybody else deer hunted now three quarters of those people turkey hunt so there's a lot more pressure on these birds there's a lot more people and again i'm, I'm trying to be as politically correct as i can but i'm not real good at it there's a difference in being a turkey hunter and being someone who hunts turkeys and with the advancement in technology and tactics and toys and gear you have made people who hunt turkeys a lot more effective killers and i think that has that has played a role in what i think and what i'm not the only one there's a bunch of people that think turkeys are in a decline not just in alabama but southeastern wide I know y'all see that in your hunting clubs and areas that you've hunted all your life. There's more people that kill turkeys than there were 15 years ago. Oh, there's no doubt. And I, I mean, you know, and to hit on what you're saying too, is that if you're somebody that hunts turkeys, I'll, I'll more power to you. I, I have no, I mean, I'll, if you want to put out 12 decoys and, and as long as you're within the law, if that's what, makes you happy and creates more good days. Absolutely. I love it. I want you to go do it. And yep, I don't have any problems with people being more successful. That's not personally what I enjoy, but that's okay. I mean, that's different strokes for different folks. But like you say, there are a lot, there's a lot more interest in it than what there used to be. There's it's a lot more it. people well, doing it. it. Embracing the balance and doing what we got to do to, to keep those opportunities steady and growing for that percentage of hunters whether it's declining or increasing you know all that responsibility rests on chuck to to you know make sure those opportunities continue into the future and you know whether we've got more hunters or less hunters 
we just got to do what we've got to do as responsible hunters to maintain those opportunities persist. And if we don't, yep. we're going to see a decline. That's right. And, and Joe, what you said was right. And I'm not casting dispersions on people that hunt turkeys. I don't care. It's not for me. If you want to put up your half a dozen decoys in a pop-up blind and sit on the edge of a field from daylight to dark and kill a turkey, more power to you. I'm just saying 15 years ago, those type of hunters were not nearly as successful as they are today. So that's got to be factored in because you're losing more turkeys each year, not just to the diehard, true, get after them in the woods, turkey hunters. There are more people, which is great. I want as many people to enjoy it as they can, but you can't stick your head in the sand and think that that's not having an impact on the resource. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... I was telling Clint that this year we were hunting together and I said, you know, we we'll, we could kill a turkey if we want to put in enough time. But they weren't gobbling, you know, when we were hunting together. I mean, it's they weren't they just weren't doing their thing. And, and I'm of the mind personally that when they're not doing their thing, I, I move on to something else and come back on a day when they are. Yep. But like you say, if I was of the mind to grab a fan or put out decoys or get in a pop-up blind or, you know, sit in the field and wait and deer hunt turkeys, then then I would kill more turkeys than what I do. And that's okay. But some people are doing that. And that is, that is leading to more harvest. Then you couple that with habitat changes. Uh, you couple that with not as much predator control, nest predator control and overall predator control. And it, it, it's gotta be leading to a decline. And I mean, it, you know, we talk about using science a lot, but anecdotally, I think, I know I've seen the decline, anecdotally, just my own personal experiences. Yeah. I don't hear the birds and, that we, they used to hear. And hey, that's why we ask people to participate in our avid turkey surveys. There's a lot of information that can be gleaned from not scientists, hunters on the ground, in the woods, what they see, what they hear, what they kill. That helps us. It's not what we're solely going to base things on. But that definitely helps either validate or refute what a scientific study tells us. It takes all of that stuff for us to make proper decisions. So there's, there's no substitute for on-the-ground experience. Auburn taught me a lot about being a biologist, but where I learned most of my stuff was outside putting it into practice. So we need hunters like yourself and Clint to help us by gathering that citizen science, if you want to call it that, that plays a huge impact on what we do as well. Uh, and, you know, tying it back into what we were saying earlier, I thought it was really awesome last year when Snapper Check ended up giving all recreational anglers more days to fish for Snapper because we had really bad weather during the allotted Snapper days. People were not able to get out and fish and do uh, and take the fish they normally would have taken and because we had good data they were able to add days onto the season and that was I just thought that was like I don't know I'm sure Chris and Scott and those guys were just felt awesome about that that they could give something you know give days back uh, because they had good data and I, I could see the same things happening um, with wildlife and, and and the thing too is 
you know, people don't are resistant to change, but also the data collection is much easier now than what it, what it used to be. Cause everybody's got the smartphone in their hands and it would have been a nightmare. I can't imagine having trying to do that 15 or 20 years ago, but it's all right there for us and it can be used for benefit and used for our kids and our grandkids to be able to have just as good opportunities as we have. So I hope if, if you're not using game check and you're hunting in Alabama, I hope you'll consider it and start doing it. It's a, it's a worthwhile endeavor in my opinion, but, so Chuck, if you're a landowner or a leaseholder and you're wanting to become a better turkey hunter or habitat manager, I mean, what kind of resources are there out there for us, you know, with, within your organization to to learn more uh, about what we need to be doing, how we need to do it, and, and what may be wrong or right on our property? Well, we have a technical assistance group. We reorganized five or six years ago, uh, as we talked about earlier. You know, consulting is in my heart. So we put together a really well-qualified group of biologists that represent each district. So if a landowner has questions, needs help, they can call us. We can set up a personal consultation um, to come in and help you figure out uh, what the missing link is. There's usually, there's, very few times in wildlife management is there one silver bullet that it's like, aha, if you do this, everything in the world is going to be great. But there are several things that, that, that we can do to, uh, to help you. You know, it may be that your property is loaded up with turkeys during deer season, but then during the spring, like, I don't have any. Where did they go? Well, more than likely, you don't have proper nesting habitat or brood rearing habitat. And certain point in the spring, those hens pack up and go somewhere where they know that they can successfully uh, bring a clutch of eggs off and hopefully raise that brood. And when mama leaves, he's going to follow her. So there may be some things that you can do to improve your nesting and brood rearing habitat that make those turkeys stay there year round rather than just a few months when, say, the acorns are falling. Chuck, do you think any of those technical assistance biologists could? help Clint learn how to run a mouth call? Uh, I've got a couple of them that probably could, yeah. I need all I don't the help know. I can get. Well, might take a team. It might. <laughs> well, That's Chuck, something that I can help with, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> well, Chuck, uh, it's been good, man. We've, we've enjoyed having you on today and uh, hearing what's new with, uh, with Alabama and, and talking a little turkey with you. I always love doing that. And uh, we'll look forward to having you on again soon and uh, wish you guys a, a safe summer and everything that you're doing and dealing with this, this mess of coronavirus. And uh, let's talk again as we get ready for deer season. That sounds good. Thank you all both for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Chuck. Joe, we talked a little bit about the land market in my neck of woods. How's yours doing? Well, like with anything, if you've got a good property on the market, people are interested in it. And I put a good one on, on the market this week down around Ponce de Leon, Florida. So a 235 acre track. It's got a really nice cabin on it. And uh, really just one of those places that checks off all the boxes. It's got deer, got turkeys, got ducks, got hogs, got beautiful views, got a nice place. It's really one of those spots that uh, you can enjoy with your family and, and, and be one of those places where you make a lot of memories. And it's Second to that, it's, it's really close to the beaches, so you're only 45 minutes from South Walton County, uh, Florida, 30A area, 
and uh, it, it's not going to stay on the market very long. It's been showing like crazy. And uh, but you know, aside from that place, uh, just like I say, a lot of a lot of calls for people, uh, particularly agricultural land. I'm getting a lot of interest from people looking at 300 acres and, and up. Uh, they're moving money out of other investments, whether they're sell- a lot of people are selling some other types of real estate right now while the market's still good. They think there's going to be a recession, so they're trying to 1031 that into something that's going to be a little more stable like land. Oh, man, knock on wood, everything's been going good in, on that front. And I almost feel a little guilty because they were, you know, there's a lot of businesses that aren't doing so great, but it's been great. Man. I can't complain at all. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to support those businesses once they get back open. So we, yeah. my wife and I were strategizing last night of how do we how do we take care of the barber and, and the people like that that, that we get to visit soon. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise I'm gonna have a really nice ponytail. Yeah, and you know, uh, one of the things too I think it's important to bring up and you know, I'm I'm by no means an isolationist, but now more than ever I think people are starting to realize the importance of buying things that are American made and supporting an economy that has some uh some some systems and processes and laws in place that support their workers and and uh, i'm seeing a big switch in mentality more so than ever before of people that are are really starting to think about the products that they buy and where they originated and maybe spending a little bit more to have that made in the usa stamp on it so i I know it's definitely affected me and, and started to make me question really really everything I'm buying. How about you? I mean, you, I, I mean, we, I think everybody has an American pride and, and there's no, there's no bashing in other countries necessarily, but is that something you felt more strongly about here uh, with the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, you just want to do what you can do to support those in your community and, and in the same boat as you. And, you know, we start there and then opportunities to help others will just, you know, stretch out from there in my opinion. So I think if we all focus on community first and the rest of it will, will kind of come together like it's supposed to. Yeah. Sphere of influence, right? I mean, the, you do what you can do and that affects others and they do what they can do and, and your sphere of in, influence grows. Focus on the things you can have an effect on. But yeah. man, uh, the one thing that's great about this whole thing, if there, if there's only one thing there, there's probably multiple things that is that most of the hunters and anglers that I talk to, this hadn't really changed their life all that much. They're still out there enjoying their land. They're still out there enjoying the water. Maybe they got a little less money to do it with. Uh, well, it's, but It's changed it in that they can go more. Yeah. <laughs> like we were talking about. I mean, it's, I got a turkey hunt, you know, 95% of the time I went this year, I had my six-year-old with me. And all those weekday mornings that I went, he wouldn't have been able to go with me ordinarily. So there's, you know, there's a silver lining to a lot of this. Yeah. And I've, I've seen my wife more in the last six or eight weeks than, than I've seen her probably ever in our whole lives. And so I think she, for her. yeah, I think she actually likes me. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'm getting the feeling that she does. So that's good too. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. We appreciate y'all listening in. And uh, as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like us to email you the podcast each week, it's really easy to join our email list. Head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land. To join our weekly email, we'll send it to you uh, once we put it up each week. Y'all stay safe out there and get out there and enjoy your properties. We'll talk to you next week. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. 
If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by the Alabama Ag Credit. Buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also Great Days Outdoors, the South's finest hunting and fishing magazine. Pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold or check them out at greatdaysoutdoors.com.